Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome. Thanks very much for coming this evening um, to our event um, on cultural power in the online world. Uh, my name is Professor Anna-Marie Jagos and I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to this event run in partnership with Sydney Ideas and the Worlds of Wikimedia Conference, which I know a number of you are poised to attend, which is convened by Dr. Francis Deloro and Dr. Bunty Averson, both of this faculty, in partnership with Wikimedia Australia. At events like this, of course, it's protocol to make an acknowledgement of country and this evening is no exception, of course, and quite properly so. Um, but just because it's a protocol doesn't mean we should get turned off to it um, or think it's something we hurry briefly through uh, in order to get to something more interesting or relevant. Um, and especially not at an event like this, which is in part about the barely noticeable ways in which language systems um, broker and structure power relations. So it seems particularly important. As a dean, you can probably imagine I do a lot of acknowledgements of country. And the challenge for me, um, for me, for myself, and also for my audiences, is how to keep the acknowledgement of country materially real and in the present tense. And one of the things that's been useful for me is to think about what does it mean to acknowledge something? Um, I've decided that it's not just a form of words that I say up the front, but it's something that we, we do tacitly as a collective. Um, when we acknowledge. We accept the existence, even the truth of something, I guess. So on your behalf, I would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's on their traditional lands that the University of Sydney is built, land that was never sold and never ceded. This evening, as we come together to think about how language shapes accessibility to knowledge online, it's appropriate for us to also pay respect to those older institutions of knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Cultural power in the online world, are we being skewed? Even without that provocative subtitle, there's plenty to unpack in this title. Increasingly, our information of all sorts, um, from everyday to expert, comes from online sources. And more than, more than half the people in the world, which is nearly 4 billion people, have access to the internet, and the percentage of people with mobile devices is increasing exponentially every year. But against this kind of happy account of the democratisation of online knowledge, how do different language systems shape and constrain access to knowledge online? Luckily, we don't have to ponder too long. We have two experts to hand this evening, Dr Martin Dittis, a digital geographer and data scientist from the Oxford Internet Institute, an innovatively cross-disciplinary social science computer science research centre at the University of Oxford, where he researches social computing, crowdsourcing, digital geography and big data. And Professor Jackie Troy, Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research here at the University of Sydney. The format for this evening is that Mark will deliver a keynote about language as a force or object of cultural power in which he analyzes cultural representation, patterns of online participation around the world, 
Uh, Jackie will make a brief response, sketching links between Mark's ideas and her own thinking about related developments in Indigenous language systems. And then, as the three chairs possibly signals to you, I will facilitate uh, a conversation between Jackie um, and Martin. So please, can I hand over to you? Please welcome our guest. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Anna-Marie. Um, uh, it's a great honor and a great pleasure for me to be here. Um, it's my first time in Sydney and my first time in Australia. Um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for the, um, for the excellent, the first class uh, support by the, by the team around Bunty Edison, uh, who, made, who made all of this happen. I'm very much looking forward to Worlds of Wikimania over the next coming days and discussions with, uh, with attendees. I, I was very excited also to see who's going to be participating in, in our session tonight. Um, and I think I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation we'll have after this talk. And I, for me, it was also coming here was also a, a good opportunity to learn about uh, the, a little bit about the, the local history and the history of the continent. Uh, being European, I did not receive a great education about uh, Australia's history. Um, and uh, one of the things that struck me in, in learning more about local history was the great significance, the great importance uh, in Aboriginal Australian culture about the connection to the land. Um, which for me as a digital geographer resonated on a whole number of levels, which you will understand why uh, after you've, you've seen me speak. Um, before I show you uh, the work that my collaborator Mark Graham and I uh, have been producing, I'm a little bit curious about who's here in the room, who's here with me. Um, and in particular, I, I'm wondering uh, about your relationship to Wikipedia and, and to Google Maps, which are the two platforms that I'm going to talk about uh, tonight. So he, who here in the room knows about Wikipedia? I think that's probably everybody here. Who here has contributed to Wikipedia? That's almost half. I'm very impressed. Who here has contributed in a language other than English? That's a good third. Okay. Can can you tell me what languages? There was a hand up there with what language? Galician. And then over here there were some hands. Anybody? That's that's a that's more local. And then similarly, well I touch my mic. Who here um, is using Google Maps? I think that's maybe everybody. Who here has contributed to Google Maps? Also a good third. Very interesting. Um so, which, which means you already have a, a little bit of an understanding of how these platforms work and how you interact with them in, in different ways, uh, either as a recipient of the information or as a producer of the information. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But one of the things that maybe we don't know when we interact with these platforms in these ways is uh, not only are there stores of knowledge, there are stores of knowledge that come with perspective. And sometimes they come with perspectives in ways that are quite hidden. Wikipedia. Before, before I start, we should remind ourselves, is a remarkable human achievement. It's a, a, probably, most, most likely, the largest collaborative human effort that has ever existed, with millions of participants, millions of Wikipedia pages that have been created in now around 300 languages, and more languages are being added all the time. Another thing that's remarkable, uh, remarkable about Wikipedia is that it is doing this as a non-profit platform. It is not supported by advertising. It is not supported by a subscription model. It doesn't have a sponsor. It doesn't take venture capital. 
it is supported solely based on your donations. And as a result, it can decide very freely um, how it uses its resources in ways that a for-profit uh, for organization couldn't. And what's striking about what Wikipedia chose as a mission is, is, is uh, if we were to try and summarize their, their trajectory and, and, and kind of the, the set of values behind uh, Wikipedia, it places at the core of its efforts the collective benefit. And uh, it, it is one, one of the things that makes this possible, that makes Wikipedia possible, is it's, it's a volunteering model. People are not paid for their contributions. People choose to participate. And I think the, the fact that it has this collective benefit mission is, is it plays a big role in that people choose to participate. It feels like a shared uh, effort. It feels like you're contributing to a, to a community and to the, kind of the, 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 the greater um, uh, benefit of, of humanity. And the vision behind Wikipedia that kind of that feeds into this collective effort is to gather all of human knowledge and make it available to every person in the world, which is a very very noble goal. But also, once you express it like that, you realize it's also, it's, a, it's a very high uh, it's a very high bar. So the question we are asking is, how close are we currently to this vision? And one of the ways in which we might look at this is from from a geographic perspective by asking which places in the world have been written about and, and in which detail. This here is, is a Wikipedia page, which is an example of a page about a particular place. In this case, I think it's a castle in Germany, a Nidegging castle. And this page here already has a number of geographic references uh, on the page. And we, we, we see here uh, at the top right, we see uh, what's called a ge geographic coordinate. That's that's the uh, reference to the specific geographic location on the on the planet where this kind of castle is located. Then we have a pin on on the map, and uh, further down we have the set of coordinates again. If we take all of these geographic references or geotags, as they're called, uh, on all Wikipedia pages across all languages of Wikipedia, and we put them on the map of the world, this is what this map look, looks like. These are the places in the world that have been written about in Wikipedia. So this is now around five, six years old. Uh, uh, Wikipedia's geography has since then changed a little, and I'll show you some of that later. Um, but even back then, so on one hand, we, we see there there is a vast amount of, of knowledge available that somehow covers uh, uh, many regions of the world, but we also we see great spatial inequality. We see that Central Europe, Western Europe has been highly, densely documented. North America as well, uh, in particular the, the coasts. Uh, and then in, in most other continents, you see a, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, information has been collected in, in densely urban areas in particular countries, but there are still many places in the world that really haven't been written about on Wikipedia. And in particular, I want to point out to you the whole continent of Africa, which is a multiple of the size of Europe, which has a multiple of the, the, the population count of Europe and yet has only a fraction of the amount of Wikipedia content available for it. So this here, this, this line of inquiry or this way of looking at Wikipedia as a platform, that's an example of uh, the, the work in the discipline of information geography, which is uh, the work that, uh, that I'm currently doing together with my collaborator, Mark Graham. Classic geography is, is looking at place and terrain and, 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 and space. Um, and, and it might ask, uh, does, does this place in the world have a particular feature? Does it have, does it have a castle? Information geography looks at the relationship between these things and 
the, you know, the digital information that is available about the world. So information geography might ask, does this place have a Wikipedia page? And when, when we do this for Wikipedia, we can, we can do this for many platforms, but when we, when we do this for Wikipedia, we see an imbalance in representation. We see an imbalance in what is shown about particular places in the world. The, the important question we now have to ask is why do we see that? And I can show you some of the uh, some of the causes behind that that we now understand. But I think also fundamentally, I have to say, um, like like many uh, uh, human uh, concerns and many human struggles, it's it's a very complex uh, set of things that are happening, and we only understand it to an extent. The first thing we have to point out is because Wikipedia is an online activity, you need to be online in the first place. For us, in maybe in a place like Sydney or, or like myself in a place like London, we don't think twice about having two, maybe three types of broadband connection in our lives. Uh, we have mobile phones that are with us all the time. We have broadband at home. We might have uh, broadband at work. And, and that's not unusual for us. Well, but this is not the uh, this is not the general uh, human experience. Uh, there are many places in the world where this is not the case. And in fact, even more, uh, even more importantly, there are places in the world where this would be uh, remarkably unaffordable. Again, when you hear this here is is a map that shows the cost of broadband for different countries in the world as a percentage of the average monthly income. And when we look at Africa, which is deeply uh, uh, shaded in red, we see that there are many countries in Africa, but also in other places in the world, where a single uh, connection of broadband access costs more than the average monthly salary. So this is a big barrier to any form of online participation for many places around the world. At the same time, this is in itself is not enough. If we just look at the people in the places, in different places in the world who are online, and we, we determine to what extent do they participate in Wikipedia, we, we still see that in, in Africa and in, in China and other places in the world, um, uh, there is not necessarily the participation happening automatically just because people managed to get online. And I think this is why, why that is, that's where it becomes more complicated. And, and I'll, again, I'll, I'll talk about some, some of the things we understand in a little bit. One of the consequences of this, and this is largely uh, this, this one image, I think, we would, could, could stand in as a summary of, of the entire talk tonight. As a, as a result of this imbalance of representation and this imbalance of participation, uh, we, have the, um, we have the outcome that on Wikipedia, a lot of the knowledge that is there about different places on the world has not necessarily been written by the people from those places. This map here shows for every place in the world that has articles on, uh, on Wikipedia, um, to what extent these articles have been written by people who come from this country. You see North America is deeply green, uh, Central Western Europe, Australia as well, uh, some, some countries in uh, South Africa. But again, the African continent, it is largely uh, pale, a, a very small fraction of the contributions on Wikipedia about Africa are written by Africans. So you, you, you might summarize it by saying, Africa currently does not appear to have the capacity to tell its own story on Wikipedia. And instead, a lot of its story is written by people who are not from Africa. One of the 
things that one of the factors that plays into this is that at this point, Wiki contributing to Wikipedia is actually a surprisingly complex process. It requires a fair amount of knowledge about what essentially is, has become its bureaucracy. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a derogatory sense, um, because Wikipedia has become such an important knowledge resource for the world now at this point. A lot of effort is put into making sure that the information on Wikipedia is, is valid, is accurate. Um, and as a result, there's over time, uh, Wikipedia's editing culture has introduced more and more expectations that is placed on every individual contribution. So now contributing now is, 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 is to, to a significant degree, involves more effort than contributing 10-15 contributing years ago. One of the ways in which you might see that as a re reader of Wikipedia is through these annotations of the, the citation needed tag. How many people here have seen that tag? Yeah, I think almost everybody. How he, how many people here could explain what the tag uh, uh, means and how you could address it? And there's more shame in admitting uh, that you can't, because in fact it's, it is it requires a surprising amount of knowledge to, to understand it. In a nutshell, this, this tag means that, um, or this tag reflects the fact that one of the ways in which Wikipedia ensures quality of, of content is by making sure that important claims that are made on Wikipedia pages they're not original claims, but they're backed by a reference. So you, you add your claim as a Wikipedia editor, and then you link to a reference, a secondary source, that substantiates this. So it's not you as the individual who's making the claim, but instead you're just paraphrasing what someone of, of authority has said. And that could be a local newspaper, or it could be a, a magazine, it could be a book, uh, it could be an academic paper. Here, here's an example uh, that I've taken from a Wikipedia page about the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The claim that is being made here uh, is the toll for all southbound vehicles at some point was introduced to three dollars uh, in March 2004. Citation. So to someone local, this might be a, a kind of amusing uh, challenge because everybody here knows what the well, many people here might know what the what the toll is and what it was and and. Uh, how it increased, or at the, at the same time, it also might seem like a marginal, marginal, uh, an issue of marginal importance. We might not need necessarily a reference for that claim, but we also imagine there might be a website, maybe somewhere where we can link to and then that have have that detail listed. Here's another example. Here's the uh, from Wikipedia about the Yanomami, which is a uh, an indigenous tribe in the Amazon. The claim that is being made here is about their marital practice. So the sentence I've highlighted says um, there, there are examples of uh, Yanomami who, um, who, are in, who are engaged in polyandry. Uh, ho however, polygyny was also observed. Uh, citation needed. So here it's, it's a lot more tricky because not knowing anything about the Yanomami or also even generally about uh, the, kind of the, the storytelling and, and uh, his history writing practices of Amazonian tribes, I imagine there might not be a website where this claim is substantiated. And I imagine um, if it has been written about, then maybe in, a, in, in Spanish, maybe not in English. Um, so suddenly providing a reference for this becomes actually really challenging. This map here illustrates what that looks like at global scale. This map here shows for every place in the world um, to what extent the Wikipedia pages about these places are relying on local references or on outside references to substantiate claims. 
Again, we see Africa is, is, is this kind of pale, this light blue, which means that a lot of the resources that Wikipedia editors rely on to write about Africa are not produced in Africa. So not only are the contributors who make these, and who write in the articles, not Africans, the, the secondary sources that they rely on to substantiate their claims or even to gather information are also not African. And, and this is, is, is a, there's a whole set of barriers in that. On one hand, being able to understand, to have, have, to have the time and the patience to understand the bureaucracy of, of these kind of the, the contribution process and the, and the steps that are required. And then having, being in an in information environment and a knowledge environment that supports you in substantiating your claims. So as a result of all these things, we, we see that for many places in the world where there is Wikipedia information available, often the, the language that has the most detailed information is not necessarily a local language. This map here shows for every country for which we have Wikipedia information, to what extent these, uh, uh, the largest number of articles about this country have been written in a language that is local to the country or to a, a non-local country. And we see that largely the, the global south, um, but again, uh, largely Africa, has been written about in, in, in some detail, but often in languages that are not local to the country. In a lot of the cases, it's English, sometimes it's Spanish, sometimes it's, it's Swedish or, or other languages. It depends on, on the country and the circumstance. But generally, it means that people don't have access, often people in particular countries don't necessarily have access to knowledge about their places in their own language. Um, so here, here is just, again, one, one way of illustrating the relationship between the geography of the information and the ge geography of, of the contributor. When we look at the um, all Wikipedia articles that have been written about places in Montreal, in, uh, in Canada, we see that a lot of the contributors who've produced this knowledge are from Canada, from North, North America, some from Europe. Um, when we look at all the contributors have con who have contributed to Wikipedia articles about places in Nairobi, in Kenya, we see that well, that there are a fair amount of them uh, were situated in Kenya as they were producing, but also maybe a similar amount is, is North America, and to an extent also Australia and, and, and Europe. Um, so not only do we see an imbalance in, in representation, we also see an imbalance in participation as a result, result of all these things and, and, and other factors. And, and the, the question is then asked of us, or the, the kind of the, the question that Mark and I are, are then asking in this kind of uh, situation when we see that. So, so who is it really who gets to shape this kind of knowledge? Uh, who is it who has the, these, these kinds of powers of creating essentially creating truths and of write, writing history, all these kinds of things. To their great credit, so I'm, I'm not singling out uh, Wikipedians as being lazy in this. In fact, they are, uh, I, I would go in, in the very opposite direction. I, I, I think of them today almost as the UN of, of online platforms. Uh, they're really switched on in this and they're really proactive in this. And, and uh, uh, in, in part through um, through these kinds of realizations, but also through a lot of their, their own discourse within the community. A couple of years ago, they adopted a new value, which is uh, for, for uh, 
an organization that's as mature as Wikipedia and Wikimedia, that was quite a, remor a remarkable step. And the value they coined uh, was, uh, they, they call it knowledge equity, which is the um, acknowledgement that we see these imbalances at global scale, and we understand some of, some of the issues, but then also the realization that this is not, not only an inconvenience or this is not only a, a matter of being uh, factually correct, this is a social injustice. Um, so this is something where we can't address it just by wishing it away. We can't address it by hoping. We need to be proactive. We need to put resources behind this and effort behind it. And uh, to, their, to their great credit, uh, the Wikipedia community is, is doing this in, in a really big way. So one of the ways in which they, they talk about this is, is, is uh, the text that introduces the notion. Uh, I just highlighted this, this quote here. We will strive to counteract structural inequalities to ensure a just representation of knowledge and people and the Wikipedia movement. And one of the things that have, have are really important in this, and this is where why it's called knowledge equity, is not only to address the imbalance in, in participation and the imbalance in representation, but to ensure that uh, people whose, whose communities, whose places are being written about, are able to participate in the creation of this knowledge. And this is really a question of, of, of equal treatment, which was kind of the old model and equal opportunity. And this is where it becomes a, a social justice concern, where the old model was, well, anybody can sign up and create an account. Um, so in principle, everybody is already equal. Um, and, and after 10, 15 years of, of doing that, Wikipedia as a, as, a, as, a, as a community and as an organization learned that is actually not enough because the, the world has, because of structural imbalances that are just in the world, um, this cannot be enough. We need to put more effort behind this and in order to give everybody equal opportunity to be represented and to participate in the creation of representation. And as a result, uh, I mean, the Wikipedia, the global Wikipedia community already has been incredibly active in, in many ways and already had many, many local and, and global uh, interest groups and so on. But when you look at the effort now to specifically address um, uh, imbalances in representation and, and other forms of, of injustice, um, systemic bias, as uh, Wikipedia calls it, there are hundreds of, of groups around the world um, who are, who are who are working on improving Wikipedia. As a result, we, we saw in the beginning uh, on, on, the, on the global map, uh, Africa was not really presented um, in, in great detail. Um, the, the amount of content that is now available for Wikipedia is, is growing rapidly. And just over the last few years, it has, it has really exploded. On the other hand, if we compare that with the growth of knowledge that is being produced for Europe uh, and, and uh, for other continents, Africa is still lagging behind. So there are still, despite all these efforts, there are still, I think, more stuff to be done and more stuff that needs to be understood also. Um, in last year, I was at, at Wikimania at the global gathering of the Wikipedia community. And um, in the discourse, one thing that emerged was um, there are also economic inequalities that, um, that lie in the way. That, that stop people from contributing. There's, um, uh, Mark and I wrote an article for, for Wired, which you can look up online, where we summarize the, uh, the issue in more detail. Um, so it's, I think it's worth a read. But in, in very broad strokes, there was a, a moment in a Q&A session where an African Wikipedia editor summarized almost as a provocation her situation by saying, so hold on, you're expecting us to contribute our knowledge for free 
Nobody here can afford to donate their time. We need jobs. So again, we had this issue with broadband, but, but now here we have it with employment. There are systemic inequalities that are global and that are there. And, and that we need to look at if we want to, if we want just representation and in a global way where, where we, we as a global community contribute to global knowledge, we need to look at these questions also. Because if we don't, then we, by, by just by absence of, of an intervention, we invite in these systemic imbalances and these systemic processes of inclusion, of exclusion. So let, let's go back to, to um, geography a little bit. Um, we've, we've seen that not everybody has access to knowledge about the world in their own language. This now, of course, makes us ask, so how does it shape everybody's understanding of the world? And in particular, one of the ways which, in which we might observe this is how, how, does, how does this change our movements in the world? Um, just a way of illustrating this, as I said earlier, everybody now, many people in the world, certainly many people in this room, have, have these de devices with us. Um, which are everywhere we go, and, and they create what we might call these information overlays, meaning that everywhere we go, we have this additional access to information that is not just about our eyes looking at kind of features of the streets and, and, uh, and, and reading signs and so on, or, or talking to people, asking, asking them questions about the place, but instead also getting a lot of information uh, uh, digitally. Um, as I said, it's my first time in Sydney. I experienced the, the city um, in person by walking, but at every point in that, I was kind of it was digitally augmented for me, and that was a big, an important part of my experience of the city. And Google Maps is is an important element of that. It's an important uh, kind of de device and tool and platform, but also a kind of superpower that augments our experience of the world in these ways. So one thing that uh, Mark, my collaborator, uh, and, uh, and and his colleagues, but then spotted a few years ago, is that um, the language you use on Google Maps to search for stuff actually affects the results you get back. So people who search in different languages might get different uh, search results. Here's just one way of illustrating that. That's a set of screenshots from from back then. I think it's, well, maybe almost ten years ago at this point. Um, this is a set of uh, um, Google searches in Tel Aviv. And uh, he here, this is a search for restaurants in English in a particular place in the city. And you see that you get search results along down this street and this street. Here's the same search in Hebrew. And we kind of get similar search results, maybe slightly different emphasis, but kind of broadly, broadly similar. And here's the same search in Arabic, and it looks completely different. Um, so, because we tend to, well, I, I, again, I, I don't want to generalize for, for the room or for all users of Google Maps, but I tend to use one language. Despite being German, I, I tend to search in English, so I don't generally see this uh, in, in my interactions with Google Maps. So, I, it hadn't occurred to me that this might be the case until I saw these, uh, these screenshots. Um, so, we are now in the early stages of a study to look at this in more depth and more detail. Here's, here's an example just in, in our um, kind of early rough explorations, an example in Cape Town in South Africa, where we're looking for restaurants in four um, languages. One of them is, is a local language. Um, uh, okay, we don't, we don't see that. So there's, oops. Uh, unfortunately, the labels have kind of this Afrikaans. 
the bottom right is English, top right, I've forgotten, uh, bottom left is Chinese. Um, and we see that for Afrikaans, which is which is a local language, is a colonial language, but it's, it's a local language, um, there, there's a fair amount of uh, information available for English as well. For the other two languages, which are not local languages, may, maybe less information. However, when we look uh, uh, more closely, and with Afrikaans in particular, the, here we distinguish the results you get, are they in the language in which you searched? And it turns out that even when you're searching an Afrikaans, which arguably is a local language, which, well, which is a local language, um, the results you're getting back largely are, are English. We are, as I say, this, this, this is an early draft. I don't want to kind of put too much weight into, the, uh, into, into this uh, observation at this point. We, we're now in the process of looking at this for many more places in the world, or for, also for many uh, more languages. For example, in the case of South Africa, we're also looking at, uh, at Zulu and Kosa, which, which are indigenous local languages. But, but even just as an illustration, this, this is uh, quite striking that the language you use, it does matter. And again, the knowledge might not be available in your language. Here, here is uh, how this then might affect your movements. Again, this is just a very crude sketch. We will have much more shiny visualizations uh, in, in the near future. But for now, this is simply a way of illustrating where might Google Maps send you. So here on the, uh, these points on the map, these black dots, these are where we are searching from, shall we near, uh, nearby places, near this place. And then these blue lines, they give you the average destination among all your results, where, where is kind of the general location, the general direction in which Google Maps sends you. And we see that for in Afrikaans, a lot of the results are kind of nearby. Uh, and in the two non-local languages, uh, traditional Chinese and the, the kind of the third mystery language, uh, you get sent to the in the center, center to the CBD, the Central Business District. And English is, is kind of the mixture of, of the two. So uh, apparently, Google Maps might kind of affect your movements differently depending on the language you use to search. Uh, here, here's a similarly striking example in uh, in uh, Jerusalem, where we have. Arabic in the top left, Hebrew in the bottom left. And again, we see um, Arabic kind of get sent to the center, you get sent to the top near Ramallah and in the south. And in Hebrew, you, you don't get sent to Ramallah. You, you get sent kind of maybe the outskirts or kind of around the rings around the center. Um, so you get quite different, you get quite different destinations. So. Again, I don't want to put too much uh, emphasis on on the uh, on what this means because at this point we don't know. We can speculate, um, and this might not be. So with the, again, like with Wikipedia, the thing that we need to stress is uh, uh, there's not necessarily blame to, blame to place on on Google. We, we don't uh, uh, um, really understand yet what's happening there, but most likely Google is just showing you the information that is available. So maybe this might be where. Uh, um, Arabic language restaurants are placed and where Hebrew language restaurants are, are placed. Um, this might be about search behavior. This might be about Google's customers and, and their habits, which then reinforces what Google shows you. People like you chose places, chose destinations like this and so on. So there, there's a whole bunch of stuff that might be happening here. But what's, what's important here is the overall, overall outcome is that although we're using the same information sources and we're in, located in the same place, we get different versions of the world. That's, I think that's quite striking. And I, I, and I don't know if, if Google is aware of that or if that's a design criterion for their, for their application. 
if, if that's a design concern for the application, we don't know this. Um, yeah, as I said, we're, we're now looking at a, at a more comprehensive study to look at this more, more systematically. What does it, uh, um, and uh, just as a, as a kind of closing sentiment, I, I want to give you another preview, um, just showing you, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of these maps at, legal, uh, at, at uh, local scale with Google Maps. I want to show you a little, little bit of a glimpse of what this looks like at global scale. Um, five, ten years ago, Mark produced a map of this way, where he he and collaborators collaborators estimated uh, for which places in the world back then did Google Maps have any information available. But then it was that, that was that question was much more easier to to answer than it is now. Um, since then, Google Maps has, has changed this, its algorithms, its infrastructure, its search interfaces, and so on. So back back then, um, that was the answer. Uh, back then, and again, we saw we saw quite striking centralization of information with with Europe and, and North America, and, and kind of coast, coastline of Australia and other places being really well represented. Um, but again, Africa and, and many other places not really represented at all. We're now in the in, in the process of providing an updated map, which for the reasons I mentioned, are, is, is a bit more complicated. Uh, but largely, this is what we are finding uh, so far. This is just for, I think, a couple of search terms, restaurants and schools, I think. Um, and we were already saying, OK, the, the geography looks much better than just a few years ago. I think Google is really putting an effort um, into, into providing a map of the world and not just a, a map of particular countries. And it's good on them. I think that's great. Um, we, we see. There, there's a, a lot of content for India, which I found as, as someone who hasn't been in India before, that was quite striking. Uh, um, Pakistan next to it, there, there's some. There's, I think, before, in both places, uh, um, there, there wasn't really that much. Um, if we just compare that very briefly with, with a map of kind of urbanization, of where, where are the big cities in the world, um, India and, uh, and, and Pakistan and region and so on have, have, have many large cities. Um, so without going there and actually checking Google Maps and comparing that uh, to other places in the world, I, I think this density of content for India, that's not necessarily Google preferring to input content uh, about India and, and not doing that for other countries. I think this might be generally an urban density that is happening there that isn't necessarily present in other countries. So, and, and that really illustrates what big gaps are in, in platforms like this or the Google Maps of five, 10 years ago, um, how much really was missing there. So just to wrap up, I, th I think the, the thing we need to remember in all this, uh, I, I think it's very important to, to remind ourselves the, the maps that we have and the information resources we have, they are the best we've ever had. Um, Wikipedia is not only remarkable as a collaboration project, it is also remarkable as a, as a star of knowledge. And again, with Google Maps, it's the same. Um, any geographer, any cartographer um, uh, can only admire the effort and, and, the, and the real skill that, that uh, is being put in, in Google Maps. At the same time, there is no such thing as a perfect map, just as a general principle. Maps are always simplifications and generalizations. They place particular emphasis on some things and not on others. Uh, and, and just like that, uh, like any, any paper map and any, any hand-drawn map, that is also the case for digital maps. And it's also the case of, for Wikipedia. Uh, so some, some of 
Sometimes there, there are omissions, and sometimes those are simple oversights, where someone hasn't necessarily reflected on something before they started doing it. Um, so sometimes that's because a, a platform was produced in a particular culture and without awareness of many other cultures. And I think that that is how kind of the world works, and that's that happens. It's forgivable. And let's let's kind of recognize these things and then do better next time and, and work on improving them. Um, sometimes there are consequences of systemic processes of exclusion, and I think that's both more significant and also often a lot harder to address. Uh, because Wikipedia uh, can can do as, as, as can try as hard as they uh, they would like to, but they can't fix the world's inequalities. Um, they can uh, kind of uh, they can, can work towards addressing some of the issues in their particular context, but the world still has all these um, systemic circumstances that are there, and I think that's that's a lot more challenging. So let's go back to this this question. Do we have a uh, kind of a, a body of knowledge that is about the world and is created by for the world? Well, may, maybe not quite, but I think maybe we can imagine getting to that place. And I think we we are certainly closer now than we have ever been in human history. But I also think it's clear that there is still more work to be done. So the question then is, uh, what else will it take? In addition to all the things we're doing, what else will it take for us to get there? Thank you. And so we're going to move briefly to a response from Jackie Troy before we go into conversation mode. Well, um, that was extraordinary. And uh, as someone who loves to think about, I guess, the map of his place, uh, Gadigal country, and I really enjoyed your acknowledgement. Thank you very much, Anna Marie. Um, we are very fortunate to be on the land that the Gadigal people mapped and tracked around in for tens of thousands of years before this university was built. I guess um, that takes me straight to uh, one point that I'd like to make, that here at Sydney University we've set up a Sydney Centre for Languages Research. Um, Nick Enfield's um, brainchild, but all of us who are linguists as well have contributed. Uh, my own research over the last well, it's actually several decades, has been in and out of, I guess, the field of geography one way or another. And I've been thinking for a long time and most recently very acutely about how we can map, I guess, the world according to Indigenous communities, which is a very different way, I think, to the kinds of cadastre that, you know, even the maps that uh, Martin has just put up for us, that they're quite recognisable you see the, the map of the world um, should have Australia back bang in the centre, but, you know, it doesn't. But, um, so um, I'm from the high country of southeastern Australia. My country is um, vertical and then flat, um, as most of our mountain ranges in Australia are. Um, but most importantly, it's mapped according to how we think about it as the Aboriginal people from that area. There's quite a dispute going on between people from one side of what everybody in this room who's Australian, maybe internationally as well, would know as Kuzushko, named after a Polish count. But from my point of view, it's Gunama Namaji, which is the place where snow is made, surprise, surprise, um, and uh, where my clan, Nyamich clan, um, lived and still continue to be part of that country. I've got a ski lodge down at Threadbow, which makes me still squirrely in that country. Um, 
So our thinking about that country is more about what you do in the country, um, the stories connected to the country. People may have heard the term songlines. That's our ancestral heritage stories. Um, but also, how do we think about the terrain? We think about it in a vertical way. I'm also doing some research with people in the north of Pakistan where it's even more vertical. They're in the Hindu Kush, which leads up to the Himalayas. And it's pointless trying to think of the map as flat because you walk outside the door and it goes straight up. Um, I also work with people in the Andes, uh, Mapuche people, and um, their kind of tracking of country is completely different. So what do we do? Fortunately, in the digital age, we can represent this differently. So I guess what I'm particularly interested in is how do we create Indigenous maps of the world? And maybe we need a centre for Indigenous mapping, which I'd love to see perhaps led from somewhere like Sydney. Um, there have been no suggestions. Um, but also, how does that interact with something like Google Maps? Uh, a lot of Indigenous communities in Australia have been introduced to the idea of doing mapping using Google Maps. But the problem is Google then owns the information. We're very touchy about who owns our cultural knowledge and who uses our languages here in Australia because out of more than 400 languages in this country, we've, stu we've now only got 13 that can be considered, can consi be considered really strong languages. Uh, the rest of the languages are now in, in revival mode. Most of them are, one way or another. And we've got representation from <coughs> Noongar here, um, which is a wonderful language of the Western Australian area near Perth. And they even have their own Noongarpedia, which we're going to hear about. But um, And a lot of mapping done in that country and consideration of place naming. Um, so they're just one community that, you know, Google Maps could certainly interact with very actively. but who owns the information, and that's, I guess, an issue also for Wikipedia. Um, I won't go on. I guess that's my key response is um, there are issues around intellectual property, there are issues around the use of Indigenous languages. We love to use our languages online. More and more people are actually texting in their own languages, um, documenting themselves in their own languages, and even using things like Google Keyboards, which is a, a great thing to have and other kinds of keyboards so that we can use our languages not only using one kind of script um, but also how do we map our countries and what do our countries mean to us. Thanks. Thank you. I know you're trying to take your seat but I'm actually going to encourage Is it okay if I sit here? Okay. Hey, Jackie's Thank without you. your iPhone. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Do your best with it. She's up here for at least 15 minutes. Okay, so um, two, in some ways, very different um, engagements with the primary kind of concepts, but also some very strong uh, connections, I think, between the key concepts that I'm hoping that in conversation we can tease out a little bit more. Um, all right, well, Martin, when I was talking to you earlier, you described yourself as an accidental academic. Um, which I think is possibly now my favourite category of academic. And I just wanted, just to kick us off, why did you start thinking about how the world is represented by online platforms in the first place? Mm. It's, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a seemingly simple question, uh, but I think it, these, these things uh, uh, happen over time. And I think one, one important element here is 
that it's a, it, this is a, this work and work like this is a, is a synthesis of, of multiple disciplines coming together of uh, geography as a dis discipline, which, uh, as you said, is, is, is uh, the question about place and terrain and, and space and uh, territory, um, which often, well, sometimes it's about uh, geography and uh, it's about physical geography and it's about uh, country and mountain landscapes. And sometimes it's, it's about human geography, which is about, it's very much about questions of, of justice and question of, uh, of equity. And I, so work like this really happens when you introduce these forms of discourse, which are old with, with a lot of traditions and with kind of rich sense of knowledge, and you apply them to new fields, like online platforms. And uh, when, when uh, people started doing that 10, 15 years ago, uh, uh, they were maybe outsiders, uh, in, both in the geography domain and in the maybe computer science domain or in the human-computer interaction domain. Uh, but they, people like like Mark and, and and other collaborators have shown how how powerful it can be to to bring essentially an outside lens to an inside perspective, and I think that's really what what is happening here. From what you have had to say in in the slides, which are very you know graphically rich in data, and then Jackie, what you're sort of picking up on, um, there's clearly a strong interest in uh, relations of power as um, expressed through. You know, equitable or inequitable arrangements, I guess, questions of participation and exclusion. Mm. Um, and I wonder, do we presume that the online world simply reflects the inequalities of the actual world? And, and if so, what's the methodological value of focusing on online? Mm. Can I just say one of the things that struck me was that Australia seemed to do very well on all the slides in terms of participation and access to broadband and um, the capacity to engage with something like Wikipedia and Google Maps. But um, I suspect that most of the information that's up there about Australia, including about my own peoples, Indigenous peoples of Australia, is not created by us. Um, so I think that, you know, you, you also get this, you know, back to your point, Martin, about um, I guess who's controlling what's being said about a place. Australia looks like it's doing very well, it's got representation, mm -hmm. but I suspect the representation not only for my people but for other peoples in Australia is um, pretty uneven. Um, so I guess that's a, a, a point that I'd like to make about this, the engagement with it. Yeah, I, I would support that. I think it, it, this also is one of those things that goes quite deep, and it is, again, not a question of just having broadband access. Um, so when, one of the things we're finding in the context of Wikipedia is as a, as a way of capturing knowledge and as a way of writing about history, it is one particular form. Wikipedia is one the, the form of the encyclopedia. That is one way of doing that. And there are many other ways of doing that. So Wikipedia as a model, it comes out of a particular kind of enlightenment culture and a kind of enlightenment model of, of thinking about knowledge and thinking about history. Um, and uh, as a result, it, 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 is, uh, uh, it has uh, high kind of depth and, and breadth because it allows many people to, who are familiar with this model to kind of relate to it and contribute to it. But it also excludes just by virtue of having that model. For example, oral histories are not captured really on Wikipedia uh, and other forms of, of kind of cultural expressions are not really well captured there. Uh, so with, uh, for, for me, uh, what, what, what you're also saying is um, 
there, there is also a different set of habits and a different set of cultures and a different sets of kind of preparedness to engage with particular ways of storytelling. And I think that plays into it also, this also. And I think the framing of your research, or at least as I've encountered it in its PowerPoint um, you know, instantiation, is, mm. is framed around um, thinking about large nationally recognised entities. I mean, in some some international language groups, but you can imagine that depending on how a project was defined, those mm. things could change quite broadly. I mean, in some tiles, for instance, Australia looks, you know, coloured up on the coastal, but, mm. you know, practically blank, you know, across mm. the actual continent. And so mm. all, all sorts of different methods of sort of thinking about that um, make obviously different kind of outcomes. Mm. But I'd like to pick up on your point about, you know, oral versus sort of print cultures, because mm. that's obviously another kind of a... Uh, not sure, I was going to say it's another kind of a value, but it's another kind of a uh, context that Wikipedia sort of naturalises in a way. Um, and so I was wondering even about, is there a built-in constraint to measuring, say, cultural knowledge participation through an online platform like Wikipedia? I think as a, I'm, I'm trained as a computer scientist. And uh, I'm uh, so academic by accident. I, I started out as a, as a software developer and kind of big data uh, uh, a person. And uh, the thing I learned while becoming an academic and, and, and doing a PhD and all these things and learning about how research is written, the thing I learned I needed to start appreciating is that I had to, in order to become a good social scientist, I had to unlearn a lot of my training. As, as engineers, we are trained to start with a generalization. With a, with a generalizing assumption, um, <laughs> when when in fact, and uh, the, I think you, you, you're you're both really really saying this in, in, in different ways. There there are so many ways of of asking these kinds of questions and so many methods of, of uh, finding answers. Uh, so the the thing that's also always important for me to acknowledge for myself when I show these maps and these maps of the world, they're all generalizations where I'm summarizing a country with a single color, mm. which. Uh, Really, when you phrase it like that, you realize it makes no sense. A, a country cannot be summarized like that because it has different geography and it has different communities and all these kinds of things. Um, and I think that that's that's really important to acknowledge when we see always when we see work like that. Although the maps might be very shiny and the numbers might be seem very impressively presented and, and seem very convincing, but when we look behind them, we see there's a lot of nuance that is being missed and a lot of stories that are not being told. So the one thing that's that's always uh, very important for me uh, to acknowledge is that the, these are these maps and these numbers they are starting points for conversation and they're really also prompts for us to then ask about the particular to ask about the situation of particular communities and their experiences and their efforts uh, because really the, the the numbers might give us motivation but but the particular stories they give us opportunity for action and opportunity for real understanding. I think that's right. I think there's something very powerful about the visualization, mm -hmm. which is in itself a snapshot of a major condensation of, of knowledge, mm -hmm. um, and then which makes it sort of instantly accessible and therefore also critiquable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but actually, there's an enormous amount of intellectual work and analysis that goes into presenting that seemingly self-evident picture. Mm -hmm. um, please join me in thanking Martin and Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going to give Martin the very last word.
There was a really suggestion funny. earlier. Uh, could all the people who contribute to Wikipedia, all the Wikipedians and Wikimedians, uh, stand up, please? Uh, so if anybody else wants to learn I about have, Wikipedia <laughs> uh, and is looking for a person who understands it a bit better, speak to these people. Thank you for making Wikipedia. And let's Wikipedia give them a happen. round of applause. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.